0: Thank you very much. Uh, right, this afternoon I'm delighted to welcome a uh, former uh, BBC colleague of mine, Sadek Sabah, who uh, worked for the BBC for almost as many decades as me, not quite. Uh, but um, in particular, Sadek was the head of the uh, Persian party service at BBC um, uh, in recent years, and particularly instrumental in launching um, Persian TV. Uh, uh, and obviously Iran is a fascinating country, uh, geopolitically an incredibly important one, but culturally and politically also a really fascinating one. Uh, Iran is absolutely one of the keystones of, of the Middle East, uh, but a particularly difficult country to, to get to grips with and to report from as we're well here. So let so going to talk to us a little bit about the challenges of reporting Iran that he's experienced directly. Uh, Thank you very much, Richard, thank you very much for inviting me to this meeting. Yes, I'm very happy to talk about my experience. I think if I talk about my experience as head of the Persian service for the last seven years, that gives you a glimpse of challenges of reporting Iran. Seven years ago when BBC Persian television was launched nobody believed that BBC Persian could become such an important player in Iranian politics and have such an important impact on Iran. So the authorities from the beginning for the first six months they tolerated tolerated BBC Persian service, BBC Persian television. BBC radio service, Persian service by the way started 75 years ago so it is one of the oldest BBC services. But um, for the first six months, everything seemed okay. I was allowed to go to Iran after the launch. I went to Iran and made a documentary about Iran. So after the uh, Iranian presidential elections in 2009, when millions of people took to the streets, they were disputing the result of the election and all that, the regime started in Iran blaming the BBC for everything in the country. So BBC correspondent in Iran at that time, John Lyon, was um, expelled from Iran, and um, BBC Persian at that time did not have have a bureau, but BBC English had a bureau, so he was correspondent for BBC English. So from that time they started blaming the BBC for everything, so we suddenly became enemy number one. And um, the way they treated BBC Persian service was cruel, in a way, because first they started harassing the families of my colleagues in Iran. So BBC Persian has about 150 journalists. And so they started summoning their families to headquarters, Avian security services, in Tehran and other countries. And putting them under pressure, the families, that they should ask their sons and daughters working for the BBC to leave the BBC. But that, although very painful for my colleagues and myself as head of the service, but really didn't give them any benefit, just blackened their image even more by uh, adopting such cruel and inhuman um, tactics. Then they started jamming our services, and uh, they bought equipment from other <coughs> countries, including China. We know China was providing them with uh, all the equipment they, they wanted for jamming our services. And uh, f- from 2009 until 2012, that was their policy, to jam BBC Persian signals, TV signals. Uh, BBC, myself, and many other human rights activists started a campaign to this act to be stopped. And eventually, after a lot of pressure, on satellite providers. Because the irony of the issue was this uh, satellite providers like Hotbird or Utelsat, they were giving service to Iran and bbc persian let 's say and BBC, and Iranian TV stations were on the same transponder, and Iran was jamming BBC Persian but using the same transponder for, for its own TV services, which was very ironic and Eventually, after a lot of pressure from lots of people, including the eu and governments of the United States and others, the satellite providers gave a warning to Iran. That if you continue jamming BBC Persian t- television or other channels, we throw you out of our services. And Iran desperately needed satellite services, not only for its propaganda channels like Al Alam and Press TV internationally, but also for domestic trans- distribution of some of the channels. So eventually, from 2012, Iran stopped. Uh, what we call orbital jamming, but local jamming here and there, which is not very effective, still continues. Um, But despite all of these uh, problems they made for us, BBC Persian continued to grow bigger and bigger and have more impact. Today, BBC Persian has about 15 million viewers in Iran and in Afghanistan, but mostly in Iran about 12 million point two, which is huge. And BBC Persian is a big player in Iranian politics and has a huge impact. Of course, BBC Persian editorial policy is no different from other parts of the BBC. And Richard knows that quite well. (laughs) And uh, so we follow BBC impartial, factual and fair. Uh, standards for Iran as well Uh, but for Iranian BBC Persian television was a novelty. For the first time they could see presentation presentation of news in a very sleek way, very modern, Uh, studios very modern, female presenters all assertive and and, you know doing professional um, journalists and also in terms of content The Iranians for the first time, in my opinion, were having access to an alternative source of news. And that made the regime even more worried. Some of them were saying privately to me, if BBC President was taking side, it would have been easier for us, (laughs) because you can deal with that, uh, because you are associated with certain groups. Uh, Because there were many, and there are still other um, channels, opposition channels, which do not have. The same impact as BBC Persian has and the other impact BBC Persian had in Iran was um, uh, we set a standard which all other channels wanted to follow us from that moment everybody wanted to be like BBC Persian including the Iranian state television uh, so in that sense also we had a huge impact but the policy of intimidation still continued, and um, harassment of families. I remember in, uh, nine, uh, two, two years ago, during the presidential elections, almost about 50 colleagues of mine, their parents, brothers, and sisters were summoned to different, in different cities to headquarters of um, security services, just putting pressure on them. My own father. He is now f- 94, uh, two years ago, obviously he was 92. He was summoned many times to the headquarters of the security services in the northern city of Rashed, And they were asking why your son is broadcasting this item. We don't like it. Tell him to stop him. He was telling them, oh, no, look, he's over 60. He left when he was 15. But, you know, <laughs> and sometimes he jokingly told them, you know, when I walk in the streets of Rashed. People tell me, tell your son to be more harsh on the mullahs. <laughs> BBC, why BBC is being so neutral and impartial and don't, <laughs> don't do mullah bashing. And you tell me my son is against the regime, I'm confused <laughs> and let me go home. So, that kind of policy. But despite all that, I am really proud of my colleagues in BBC Persian service. Despite all the personal sufferings and sacrifices, they really do, did their best to give a professional service to a country which is, needs something like the BBC. BBC in Iran is not just one source of news. BBC is, in Iran is vital for a lot of people. And um, in that sense, we, what we achieved in, in Iran was beyond anybody's imagination. We were thinking, oh, maybe after a few years, you could have a few million viewers but never 12 million. And uh, and BBC changed the the way foreign broadcasters broadcast to Iran. And in the recent parliamentary elections, one faction was using the other faction that your list is provided by BBC Persian service. This is how impact for BBC Persian service in Iran. But apart from the BBC Persian, I just would like to give you a picture of what is happening inside Iran. Iran is described by human rights groups and press freedom groups as one of the biggest prisons for journalists in the world, which is true. But at the same time, I would say the kind of press freedom some journalists or most journalists in Iran are enjoying is unprecedented in Iran's recent history. And this is not because the mullahs who are in power, they believe in human rights and and freedom of expression. This is because Iran is a factionalized government. There are different factions. And they have never been able to establish a sort of totalitarian system like what you have in North Korea or you have under, under, Saddam Hussein or some East European countries. So it is uh, scope for journalists to work. Uh, When last time I was in Iran, uh, um, windows in bookshops in front of Tehran University, they all had a new edition of Karl Marx's Capital in the window, selling Karl Marx's Capital because there was a news translation. And this is a regime which is hostile to communism, to Marxism, and all that. But at the same time, you can get a new translation of Karl Marx's capital in the streets of Tehran. And this is the kind of contradictions in Iran you have. You can be arrested for writing something in a newspaper which you think is quite benign, but be arrested for that. And then at the same time, you can write for whatever, and nobody. bothers about what you do. So this is the kind of contradiction, not only in Iranian media, in lifestyle. I mean, Iran is is supposed to be a very austere, uh, conservative uh, state and society. But at the same time, when you look the hij- compulsory hijab in Iran at the moment, it's going back, the scarf is going back all the time. And nowadays it is mo- almost at the back of your hair, as if in the front hair is okay, it's just the back, <laughs> which they bother. <laughs> and, um, or, but every, but still in every uh, beginning of every summer, which is now, nowadays, they start a new campaign of uh, compelling people to observe their hijab. Uh, and after 37 years, the vast majority of especially young women in Iran, they don't like it. It Even older women don't like it. My mother used to say, if they force my daughters to wear this hijab, it is bad for their hair, not for any other reason. So (laughs) they they might lose their their hair. So everybody is against, not everybody, the vast majority of women are against compulsory hijab, but nonetheless they want to impose it. And, but this, but Iran having these factions gives scope for journalists to, to write. At this very moment, I could say there are dozens of newspapers published in Tehran. And most newspapers in Iran are supporters of, openly supporters of uh, Rouhani and his policy of rapprochement with the West. They supported the nuclear agreement uh, with the West. And um, so uh, you have a kind of press freedom. But what is most worrying for the Iranian regime is not newspapers and probably is not even BBC Persian or other broadcasters, it's social media. Iranians use social media in their millions. The latest information I have, over 20 million people use Telegram. And Telegram is still not blocked in Iran. And they know what is happening. And about five million Iranians live abroad, and they travel to Iran. Their families travel abroad. And Iran is a country of 80 million people. It's a very rich country. And it's a very varied country, different climates and historical and, and, and all that. So it is a country which has very educated people, You have 60 to 65% of students being female in Iran. And it is so worrying for some of the conservative Mullahs. They are trying to limit the number of women who can get into universities. Certainly, they banned universities studying certain subjects at universities. But I don't think these are, you know, has no impact, no serious impact. Still, the society does not accept the regime. And that is uh, uh, something really more and more uh, worrying for the, for, for the government, especially after the nuclear agreement, because now P- President Rouhani and his, his people want to open up, want Iranians and the Western companies to have access to Iran. And all of that has a huge impact on, in my opinion, freedom of expression in Iran and freedom of um, freedom of press in the country. But there is a hardline faction in the regime who is against all uh, transparency and opening up. And uh, so I think uh, factional fighting will continue and what is going to happen to Iran in the future. I think this is, uh, I will just say this and finish and then take questions. I think these are probably the best time for Iran because at the moment you have a supreme leader who has total control, and he can uh, approve talks with the, with, with the West about the nuclear issue, and everybody else more or less accepts because he is the source of authority. But if he dies, I don't know what is going to happen to Iran. I don't think you can have a smooth transition of power in Iran. I don't think you can have another supreme leader like him Uh, taking power in Iran because everybody who was a potential successor is eliminated, is no longer there. And uh, so maybe in the future, anything could happen in Iran. You can have President Rouhani becoming maybe a Gorbachev, I don't know, but a possibility. Or you can have a more hardline government. I think the most Possible scenario is the Revolutionary Guard taking power and ruling directly themselves or imposing or uh, planting a kind of um, puppet supreme leader. Thank you.